Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator for the Financial Times. In this week's podcast, I'll be talking to Gro Harlem Brundtland, She's an expert on pandemics. Today is a milestone. We have only known about this disease since February. Her period as head of the World Health Organization coincided with the deadly SARS epidemic that emerged in China in 2003. So today, due to an unprecedented global collaboration in public health, the World Health Organization can say that the SARS outbreaks have been contained worldwide. Now, 17 years on, the world's experiencing an even deadlier pandemic. I'll be talking to Grohal and Brundtland about how it's likely to develop and about the controversy surrounding the organization she used to run, the WHO. And they uh, actually criticized and disagreed with my travel ban at the time I did it. And they were wrong. They've been wrong about a lot of things. They seem to be very China-centric. And uh, we have to look into that. The WHO is a UN agency. It's charged with handling global health issues. But the coronavirus pandemic has now infected 2.5 million people across 210 countries, and more than 150,000 have died. At the beginning of the year, the WHO applauded China's openness about the virus. It urged the international community not to impose travel restrictions, and it's been criticised for that ever since. But Tedros Ghebreyesus, the current Director General of the WHO, has responded defiantly to criticism. I was a politician. I know how difficult this could be. Please don't politicise this virus. If you don't want many more body bugs, then you refrain from politicising it. A former health minister in Ethiopia, Dr. Tedros, has also complained that he's been the subject of racism and death threats. I can tell you personal attacks that has been going on for more than two, three months. Abuses or racist comments, giving me names, even death threats. One of the few people who understand the political pressures that Dr. Tedros is under is Groharlem Brundtland, as well as being a former director general of the WHO, She's a founding member of the Elders, a group of former world leaders. And she also chaired the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board, which reported on the threat of pandemics just a couple of months ago. In October, Dr. Brunton wrote that the world is woefully underprepared for a rapidly moving airborne pandemic. And those words now read like a very clear warning of what actually happened. So when I spoke to her on the line from her home in Oslo, I started by asking Dr. Brunton 
how long she thinks the world will be living with this pandemic. Well, we are certainly not close to the end, not in most countries, and certainly not when you look at it globally. So this pandemic, although it is not as deadly as SARS, it has such a much more intense ability to spread that it has basically spread to every country. And that means it also will take longer time to do both containment, of course, and and then mitigation. Japan, for instance, has demonstrated the danger of resurgence after having had social distancing and lockdowns. When they opened, they got a new surge. Now, some big middle-income countries or low-middle-income countries like India, Brazil, Russia, South Africa are still in early stages. So this is going to go on for a year or two until we get a vaccine that can stop and help us. And looking at the way it's progressing, what do you think needs to be done now? I mean, there's so much that needs to be done, but if you had to list a couple of things. Well, the containment strategy, public health measures, contact tracing, testing, social distancing, securing the needs of health professionals to be protected. Because that was a major problem when all of this started. Protection equipment is lacking. And also because this public health emergency and pandemic came so quickly and needs to have so strong public health efforts put in place, the economic crisis is already enormous globally. And so that needs to be urgently addressed as well. I'm co-chair of what is called the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board. We were given a mandate one and a half year back from WHO and the World Bank to look at global preparedness and monitor that. And in our report last year in September, we really told the world about the dramatic lack of preparedness. It's been an example of... <laughs> Addressing global threats when they come, and then a few years later, forgetting about them. So we said the risk of a global pandemic from a respiratory virus is really alarming, and we are not prepared. So now we need to be dealing with supporting also the public health funding to WHO And um, through the World Bank and the IMF and every large country economy has to also be prepared to address the economic crisis. The whole crisis compares to uh, World War II already. And when you talk about addressing the economic crisis and the health crisis simultaneously, given, as you say, that it's now a global disease, how possible is it going to be to restore the kind of global economy that we saw operating just a few months ago? Well, I think there will be changes in the world economy. However, in these weeks and months and the coming couple of years, a lot of debt relief financing into developing countries, in addition to in our national economies in the rich world, has to be entered in. But there will be changes due to the experiences and to the many companies that will go bankrupt, even with the support of national and international funding. Just going back to the report that you and your colleagues issued in September, 
as I understand it, you listed the US and the UK as probably the two best prepared countries for a pandemic, and yet they've done relatively badly. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, we really didn't rank countries in that report, but several of the more developed economies had done more according to the international health regulations and the advice of WHO and also global uh, reports that had come after the Ebola crisis had done more to prepare. And also, of course, they have existing health systems that generally work. However, I think joint evaluation of follow-up to international health regulations, they need to be revised based on our experience now. Because, frankly, more obligations, more commitments, more revised international agreements have to follow this crisis. Now, what makes UK and US stand out now? They were slow. They were slow in responding to a spreading viral disease. And so they lost maybe weeks, both of them, in not taking action early enough the virus was spreading in the U.S. weeks before they started doing social distancing and really addressing the question. But next door to you, you're in Norway, next door to you is Sweden, which has really stood out as being among the more reluctant countries to close down, to do a lockdown. What do you think of what the Swedes are doing and how's it going? Well, so far, the more lenient and not so solid close down that Sweden has done, although they have done some. It's not like nothing, but they are more reluctant than Norway has been or Denmark has been. And they have much higher hospitalization numbers, much higher mortality rates. So, so far, they certainly have had a picture of the epidemic evolving that doesn't look as good as in Denmark and Norway. However, the answer from the Swedish epidemiologists and the Swedish system is that we really don't know until we see the end of the total curve. How is it going to be with the total mortality or the total hospitalization cases? It is true that it is hard to judge. However, if I now were prime minister, as I used to be, I certainly would follow the Norwegian or Danish procedure. And you were also, as well as being prime minister, you were head of the World Health Organization in the crisis that was most like this, perhaps, SARS. And that too originated in China. It was also a respiratory disease. What lessons do you draw from dealing with that SARS epidemic? There are several lessons, of course. But one is clear that WHO needs to take a lead in a global health threat and crisis. And it was possible or necessary to do so. I knew there was no one else, no other leader that could represent all the countries with regard to a health threat. So when people said to me, do we have the mandate to make travel recommendations or to do a number of things? I said, nobody else has the mandate. And in the constitution of the WHO, there is a strong mandate also given to the director general and to the organization itself. So that's one lesson that one needs to realize that we have global institutions, but the one that can help us in a health emergency is first and foremost the WHO. Sharing information across all countries, but we also learned 
that you have to improve the commitments for transparency, that all countries were not following the rules of international health regulations, even at that time. So China was slow and difficult in sharing information, which led, of course, then to the WHO taking initiative to revise the international health regulations, and that was finalized in 2005. Even now, the international health regulations are not strong enough because, again, we have seen China being slow in reporting. You were notably willing to be open in criticizing China in public. Dr. Tedros, the current head of the WHO, has been much more reluctant to do that. Do you think he's been too reluctant? You know what was the situation? When you go 17 years back, I had no alternative to speaking out. Because what China did then was for days and then weeks refusing to take my call to the health minister of China, telling us that no, the People's Congress was assembling in February and the health minister was not available, etc. So as days and maybe a week or two went like that, where we tried to get information, I then spoke out. Because there was no alternative, I had no response. So I had to speak out publicly against China and ask them to answer my calls. And then they did. Now, in this case, if you compare, the WHO had contact with Beijing in the end of December when they shared the spreading of a respiratory disease in Wuhan and Hubei province. So it, the story is different. Now, after that, I think that the director general saw that he already had contact with China. He thought it was important to work with China, trying to get WHO experts in to help them look at this. And so the story is a little different. However, that doesn't refrain from me criticizing China and the local authorities, certainly, in Wuhan and uh, Hubei, to have covered up maybe for weeks, what they saw was something new and dangerous. The WHO's role has now become an international political controversy. President Trump has threatened, maybe he actually will, to suspend US funding of the WHO. What do you make of that current row? Well, I think it's very unfortunate and it's certainly not helpful at all. You know, this kind of attack on WHO is in the interest of no one, not in the interest of the United States, not in the interest of any country across the world. We need to support the crucial role that WHO has and has also been implementing during these months. And by the way, when we talk about the experience with China this time, China established and shared the genetic composition of the new virus already in the first week or two of January. And it spread across the world, making it possible to produce and prepare tests, which led to countries like South Korea and others testing a large number of people early on and stopping the spread of that epidemic in that country, just to use an example. So you're saying that China's behavior certainly as compared to the SARS epidemic, while it's not perfect, to put it mildly now, is a lot better than it was during your period. Let me say it is better, but I think the local authorities 
have kind of repeated, even 17 years later, trying to conceal for not only days, but weeks, which is very unfortunate. And describe to me the kind of political pressures that a director general of the WHO is under in a circumstance like this, because it's often thought of as a technocratic job, but as Dr. Tedros has discovered, it's a deeply political job as well. Yes, and I, I think Tedros knew even before he campaigned for the post that it is really fundamentally technical and political. You cannot be a leader without entering into the political arena. And uh, he had been foreign minister, you know, in addition to health minister, he knew. But I remember, you know, my own thinking about the question of being the director general with a strong constitution and mandate. But that was not always taken for granted by every country. So you need to establish your independence of any one country. And I did that even as I entered the WHO by saying we are not going to have an assistant director general from every Security Council country. I'm going to pick the top leadership of WHO based on competence, not on which country they came from. And that was respected, although they grumbled. They did kind of respect my position on that because I knew it was important to establish independence. The director general, as any other leader of any global institution, will be under pressure, but you have to be kind of very determined in your mind that you are not going to bow for any kind of unreasonable pressure, thinking of every country's interest. Do you think that Dr. Tedros may have been, in retrospect, too cautious about appeasing the big powers? I don't know. I think it's important. Let us continue supporting the critical role of WHO in these months and even maybe years, and then go into a broad exercise of looking at what everyone did, the WHO, and what every country did, because we need to learn from this experience. You um, obviously believe that the route forward is much deeper international cooperation. You've said that. And yet, if you look at the environment in which not just the WHO is operating, but all international organizations, it looks like we're moving in the other direction. President Trump obviously is not a multilateralist, to put it mildly, is pulling America out of uh, a lot of international organizations. China seems to be uh, becoming increasingly nationalistic. What do you think the future of international cooperation is going to be? Are you optimistic? Well, I I think there are going to come two trends as people look at what happened and what needs to happen now. So I think we will have both an increased awareness of the importance of national governance and the importance of global governance. I think both will happen. This crisis is as large as the Second World War. What happened? After the Second World War, the UN was established the Bretton Woods institutions were established because people understood we came out of a real crisis. And political leaders were aware that we need to do something different. So I believe that the awareness of global cooperation and commitment is going to increase from this crisis. But, you know, during the World War, nations had to step up and to do quite uh, dramatic measures to counter the then German threat. 
So it was a combination of strong nations and strong international commitment that helped us come out of the Second World War. This is what I think will happen this time too, or as certainly that's what I hope will happen. Just a last point, though, more specifically on the disease. I mean, I guess there is a risk that people do the opposite, that they say, well, that was really terrible, but these things happen quite rarely. The last time was a global pandemic of this scale was a century ago with the Spanish flu. From what you know of pandemics, is this likely to be a once-in-a-lifetime occasion, or are you worried that actually we could have another one you know, relatively recently? I am worried that historic lessons are not enough in this case. It was a very different world 100 years ago. People were not traveling. There were no airplanes. I mean, it's so fundamentally different. So today, with all the contact across borders and the supply chains, everything crossing borders across the world, the risk of a new pandemic is much larger than what it would have been 50 years ago. It's only 17 years since we had SARS. After that, we have had both MERS and Ebola. And they were both countered by collaboration, by using science, and by working to contain and to conquer it. That was Grohal and Brundtland in Oslo, ending this edition of the Rathman Review. And if you could spare a few moments, we'd love to hear from you about what you think about the show and how it can improve. We're running a survey, which you can find at ft.com slash survey. You might also like to subscribe to the FT's Coronavirus Business Update, a level-headed expert email briefing on how the pandemic's affecting global markets, business and workplaces. Visit ft.com slash COVID to sign up for free access for 30 days. And please join us again next week. You can find us in all the usual podcast apps.